0: hello guys welcome back to episode number 21 and today i'm joined by lily nichols lily nichols is a registered dietitian and nutritionist certified diabetes educator researcher and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition exercise her work is known for being research focused thorough and unapologetically critical of outdated dietary guidelines she is the author of two best-selling books real food for pregnancy and real food for gestational diabetes. In this episode we discuss why nutrition is so important for fertility and pregnancy, why we should be focusing on a real food approach rather than the conventional dietary recommendations and what that actually means, some of the key nutrients for pregnancy that aren't often discussed, whether prenatal vitamins are actually important and necessary and how to find a good supplement. I've actually read Lily's book and definitely recommend it whether you're trying to get pregnant at the moment or in the future and I think just her dietary philosophy is important for pretty much everyone. Just eat real food and what, what do we mean by real food? So you'll be able to get a sense of her approach during this interview but basically it's very traditional and ancestrally focused. I see so many women these days struggling with pregnancy complications or the child is ill or has health issues when it's born and a lot of this can be influenced by the health of the mother going into pregnancy obviously there's other factors, lifestyle, environment but I don't think a lot of us know the impact that we can have using food as medicine so this interview is packed full of information and I highly recommend that everyone goes out and picks up Lily's book If you're struggling with gestational diabetes, then she has a separate one on that condition too. So here's Lily, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi Lily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to get talking about pregnancy, real food, and hormones, how to support them during pregnancy. So why don't you start off by sharing a bit about who you are and how you got into this area.
1: Sure thing. So... Yeah, as you've already um, introduced my bio, I am a registered dietitian and nutritionist um, and a certified diabetes educator. And I actually came into the prenatal nutrition side of the field kind of from an interesting place from the gestational diabetes side of things. So the the elevated blood sugar that's either first recognized or first develops during pregnancy. Uh, and in those roles, I was able to see how the guidelines don't exactly match up with what works in practice, um, which led me not only to question what's going on with all the gestational diabetes guidelines nutrition-wise, but sort of branching out into the rest of the prenatal nutrition field and seeing just how much room there is for improvement when you really start looking at the updated scientific literature um, and how many holes there are. So I've worked in this field from the public policy angle with the state of California to clinical practice, a lot of consulting for different prenatal organizations, to research, and now a lot of writing. I have two books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. So I'm just really about getting more up-to-date evidence-based information in the hands of moms so they can have healthier more enjoyable pregnancies um, more choice in their care providers uh, for their pregnancy and birth and just healthier babies all around better easier postpartum recovery um, all that Mm -hmm.
0: and yeah I've got your book right here and it is absolutely jam-packed with information into the sciency types of things at some points but obviously it's pretty accessible to the average person as well so I think you've done a really good job at um, kind of compiling all of the data and um, the, the up-to-date data like you mentioned and how does that differ from the typical food pyramid and guidelines? I don't know if it's a little bit different in America to the UK so maybe you could just go over what the conventional approach is and the conventional advice and how that differs to what you believe in.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's pretty similar because a lot of countries use the U.S. dietary guidelines as sort of a basis for okay. setting their guidelines. So you'll see like slight differences in percentages of macronutrients or, you know, this many micrograms more of vitamin B12 than another country, but they're pretty similar. So the basis of conventional prenatal nutrition guidelines are, um In the US, 45 to 65% of your calories coming from carbohydrates. So there's a pretty heavy emphasis on uh, lots of grains uh, in the diet. And then um, minimizing your intake of saturated fat and cholesterol, minimizing your intake of salt, minimizing your intake of red meat. So focusing on on lean proteins. Um, And of course, all the guidelines recommend produce, fresh produce, fruits and vegetables, which I don't think whatever side of the coin mm-hmm. you're on, everybody agrees yeah. produce is good. <laughs> um, Probably
0: the one thing that everyone does <laughs> agree on, <laughs> I guess.
1: Um, <laughs> but the, the conventional guidelines really, it's interesting because they push this high carb diet by, and then by minimizing your, um, your allowance for fat and cholesterol They, by default, minimize your intake of a lot of foods that are actually really nutrient-dense. So foods that would provide you naturally with a lot of highly absorbable iron, with B12, with choline. Some of these nutrients are really vital for um, fetal development or avoiding anemia. And instead, they kind of try to make up the, the lack with fortified foods. So... Sure, you won't get much iron if you're not eating much red meat because red meat has saturated fat and you're not supposed to eat that. But, you know, just eat this fortified cereal that has iron added back and you're good to go. So it's a different way of looking at food where we're kind of, it's, it's a bit of a top-down nutritionism approach where you're looking at specific nutrients in isolation and not necessarily considering, like, the whole in which they came from, which to me is more of a real food focus when you're looking at whole unprocessed foods that provide a whole complement of micronutrients and you look at reverse engineering an optimal prenatal diet that meets all of your micronutrient needs from food mostly, which which actually can be mostly done, um, you get a much different picture of what might be an optimal prenatal diet and you get a much different picture of how that toys out macronutrient wise as well. It's just, it's going to be really hard to meet all your micronutrient needs from food if half or more than half of your diet is coming from carbs. It's just, it's
0: just fact of life. You run a
1: nutrient analysis and it comes up very clear.
0: Yeah. And yeah, I don't even understand how they think it's the same fortifying foods with certain nutrients like iron um, f- folic acid, right. and how they believe that that's just the same as the food version. It's absolutely not the same <laughs> yeah. and why why is the conventional um, recommendation why why is it so high in carbohydrates and why are they limiting certain things like cholesterol? Is it just due to old outdated research? Yes. Okay. <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah.
1: It's related to because all of all of the guidelines for specific age groups are just an extrapolation of the guidelines for the general population. So, you know, these guidelines, which came out in the early 1980s, they were based on this foundation of what we now know as kind of flawed research, that saturated fat and cholesterol intake were going to increase your risk of heart disease. And therefore, we should reduce our intake of those foods. And instead, that that the balance ends up being you eat a lot more carbohydrates when your diet is lower in fat. It's just sort of like a, it's a given. Um, so yes, it's based on outdated information, primarily with regards to um, the the potential what they thought were the heart damaging effects of saturated fat and cholesterol. And now we have you know, thirty. 40 years of data showing us that, oh, wait, there's no correlation between saturated fat intake and heart disease. Oh, wait, there's no correlation between cholesterol intake and heart disease. Cholesterol intake doesn't even impact your cholesterol levels <laughs> in your blood. Um, and so that whole you know diet heart hypothesis, lipid hypothesis has been debunked, but these things still carry forward for a really long time. And they say there's an average of about 17 years for new research to make it into clinical practice. You find that that gap is even larger when it comes to revising dietary guidelines, revising public policy. Mm. So it's it's a matter of time that this will shift. But these are you know strongly held incorrect beliefs that have been around for decades, and it's really hard to um, fight against something that has been
0: doctrine for so long. Mm -hmm. And how long how long are you estimating that it's gonna take? Are we saying 10, 20, 30 years before the real food approach and fat being good for us and not bad for us? When when do you think that will be common common knowledge?
1: I don't know. I think a lot of it depends on who we have working on our dietary guidelines. So mm-hmm. a cool story, a positive story is the Czech Republic actually revised their dietary guidelines for pregnancy, specifically related to gestational diabetes in 2016, um, after a doctor read my book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, oh. and, and learned some new information and put it into practice and started seeing improved outcomes with her, with her patients. And so they actually revised their guidelines. Rather quickly, um, and instead of having a minimum requirement for carbohydrates in pregnancy, they reversed their guidelines to set that previous minimum as the recommended maximum intake of carbohydrates for pregnancy. So a, a complete 180. Yeah. Um, now this is a, a smaller country, and so there's probably that probably plays into how it's maybe easier, fewer conflicts of interest, maybe going into, um, changing around the guidelines. But I think a lot of it depends on a getting like good research out there. We need people to continue to put out research year after year after year on these topics and then clinicians and practitioners to speak up to the people who are working on the policy. I have no idea when it's going to shift in the U S but we have seen little like quiet things shift. Like in the American heart association, they have kind of taken out a lot of their language telling you to minimize your intake of cholesterol, which previously was like their number one priority for heart patients was to eat less cholesterol, eat less eggs. And now they've just kind of quietly removed it, Mm -hmm. but they haven't necessarily publicly come out and been like, well, everything we told you for the last 30 years was incorrect and we're changing it. They've just removed a lot of that verbiage. So I don't know. I'm hopeful that it's, you know, in the next five to 10 years, but I'm certainly not holding my breath. Hmm.
0: Yeah. We need someone like you on all the nutrition boards across the world, (laughs) just preaching all of this information. Yeah. (laughs) And why is nutrition so important when it comes to pregnancy? So for preconception health for the actual pregnancy itself and postpartum can we really influence the the health of our body and our child's body through the food that we eat We
1: absolutely can so a lot of this if you have the luxury of planning a pregnancy comes back to how healthy is the mother going into pregnancy so like at the time of conception how healthy is she because the several months leading up to pregnancy play a role in her egg health. And of course the health of the egg and the health of the sperm is important for those early weeks of development to go as planned. Um, the first eight weeks of pregnancy are when all of the internal organs and in their basic structure are formed. The neural tube, the, the earliest part of brain development um, that's fully closed by about 12 weeks. So we're looking at the first trimester as a really important time for avoiding um, some of the most serious issues with pregnancy, like a loss of a pregnancy, miscarriage, um, or other deformities like spina bifida or neural tube defects or other other abnormalities. Um, Beyond that, beyond that early window. So, I do want to say, like, yes, absolutely, we know that health going into pregnancy is important. What you're eating during pregnancy, granted, the first trimester is like a bit of a crapshoot on how well (laughs) you can eat because usually you're pretty nauseous or have food aversions. (laughs) This is why this, like, the preconception step is really helpful to build up your nutrition stores. But once you can, like, get back to eating more real food, you can influence your risk of certain pregnancy complications um, based on food and your nutrient intake. So for example, we know like adequate amounts of iron, B12, vitamin D, um, those can all reduce your risk of preterm labor pretty significantly. We know number of nutrients can influence your risk for gestational diabetes or preeclampsia. So it, it, it just could make for a much smoother healthier pregnancy, help your body adapt to the really high nutritional and physical demands of pregnancy itself. And then there's the benefits to your baby as well. So we know that, yes, your baby inherits your genetics, what you and your partner or father of the baby, um, what genes are going in at the very beginning. But we can also influence how those genes are expressed, which is called epigenetics so how you might have a gene for a higher risk of type 2 diabetes for example but given optimal conditions in pregnancy you might actually pre-program the epigenetics in a better way to actually reduce your child's risk of developing diabetes later in life or on the flip side maybe things aren't going as well maybe your blood sugar is really high maybe there's a high intake of trans fats maybe there's some nutrient deficiencies and that could do the opposite. It can increase the child's risk of developing type 2 diabetes and do so at, a, at, an, at an earlier age than we might expect otherwise. So there's a, we can influence how likely our, our child is going to face adverse health outcomes later in life. We certainly have a whole body of research on brain development. So there's a lot of nutrients that play a really important role in brain development and that. Uh, can be tied back to a mother's nutrient intake and nutrient status during pregnancy. So that's a whole gamut of micronutrients, but DHA, choline, um, iron, B12, iodine, just to name a few, um, are some of the ones that we have pretty strong data showing that if we can optimize intake of those nutrients, we can actually end up with children who score better on cognitive tests and are less at risk for having um, developmental delays or delays in motor skill development or speech issues or any anything like that
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I just don't think a lot of people make that connection between the labor that they have the whole pregnancy experience the child's eczema or allergies in childhood they just don't make that connection and either think it's just random or just some people deal with that but it could absolutely be food related not always just that there's obviously other things going on but I think it plays a big role and would you say that when it comes to hormone imbalances and fertility so in the preconception phase couples who are um, struggling to conceive would you say that a big chunk of that is due to maybe dietary imbalances or nutrient deficiencies um and what are some other things that you see playing into that
1: well it it certainly plays a role and i like to look at pregnancy and you could apply this to fertility as well you're just stacking the deck in your favor like not everything is within our control and that is That is the reality. I mean, pregnancy—the fact that you can conceive and carry and grow a like full-blown human being—is absolutely a miracle. And there's a lot of little things that need to line up just right for it to, for the pregnancy to take and to continue on um, without issue. So some of those things are not in our control. I'm always focusing on the ones that are within our control, um, which. Would we would hope gives people a little more of an empowered feeling going into pregnancy that this isn't just some act of God that everything is either going to go great or going to go terrible and you have zero control. Like it's yeah. somewhere in between. Um, and I think that's an important message for people to take in. Um, I would say uh, going into pregnancy in terms of influencing you know, egg quality, your chances of conceiving, um, absolutely hormone balance plays a big role in that. And so there's a lot of different things that can throw off hormone balance. Nutrient deficiencies are one of them, one of many. I mean, there's also many other things that can stress our body from like emotional and work stress, disrupted sleep exposure to toxins and pollution, there's a, there's a lot that, that can go into it. Um, with all of those though, there's a diet and lifestyle connection that can usually help bring the hormones a little better back into balance. Um, so helping like avoiding exposure to toxins and aiding your body's ability to naturally detoxify those chemicals. That's a, that's key. Because there's a lot of chemicals in our environment that can throw off estrogen balance and estrogen metabolism, um, as well as other sex hormones as well. So just some you know basic things like not cooking in nonstick pans, not storing food in plastic or reheating food in plastic in the microwave where it can like transfer into your food. Um, those are like some really small steps that can be really beneficial. And then in addition to that, you know getting enough of the nutrients that support your body's, detoxification pathways. Um, A lot of the nutrients in cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, kale, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts can be really helpful for um, aiding estrogen metabolism, getting adequate amounts of protein, especially high glycine protein foods like slow cooked meat, bone broth, that can be really beneficial. I was actually just reading a study on, um, they were looking at, I think it was shoe Shoe workers in India, and they provided them with high glycine foods for a couple days, and then looked at their urinary excretion of certain toxins that they're exposed to in their workplace. And they were excreting higher amounts of those toxins in the period of time that they were taking in more glycine-rich foods. It wasn't Mm -hmm. even a supplement; glycine-rich foods, which have been part of our ancestral eating if you eat animals nose to tail and make use of the bones and the tough cuts of meat you're getting a lot of glycine that way and that does have clinically significant impacts on your ability to get rid of and eliminate um, harmful chemicals and things from your body because it's glycine is part of your major detoxification enzyme in your liver called glutathione so we there's all these like little pieces of information that sort of add up to this whole of there are benefits to eating more nutrient-dense foods, prioritizing going to sleep early, finding ways to manage and mitigate and minimize your stressors, (laughs) Mm -hmm. avoidance of toxins, all of those things, they all kind of converge in in overall helping to normalize your menstrual cycles and improve your fertility and improve your your egg quality. Um, Whether or not you choose to conceive, it's still a benefit to your health to have your hormones in balance.
0: Exactly. All of those things that you just mentioned, the not just going to benefit your fertility and your pregnancy and your future child but also your future health as well and disease risk so regardless of if you want to get pregnant or not working on your stress management avoiding these toxins eating nutrient-dense food it's just going to benefit you anyway so just start to get into the habit of that and are the environmental toxins um, the avoidance of that would that play into um, eating organic as well. Are you a big um, proponent of eating organic foods?
1: I I am with, with the caveat that we're all just doing the best that we can based yeah. on what's available and what we can afford. Um, so if you have the luxury of being able to afford foods that have been grown without pesticides, um, animal foods that have been raised animals that have been raised on, on pasture or on grass instead of being fed a whole bunch of corn and soy, which are typically conventionally raised with a lot of pesticides. There are measurable differences in nutrient density, um, the quantity of pesticide residues that those foods might have when it comes to animal products. like Just like humans, when you feed animals the right things, they're healthier and they need less pharmaceutical interventions like antibiotics and other other things other medications to keep them healthy and so ultimately that impacts the quality of the animal foods as well um, so yes i do think those things are important if it is within your means um, but i also don't want to dissuade people from thinking well well if i can't buy organic then i may as well just like not even try hmm. um, we're all doing the best that we can i don't Hundred percent, perfectly all organic. I just yeah. try to prioritize it when I can and and when it makes sense and when it's you know easily available to me. But that doesn't always happen. <laughs> so exactly. I do include in um, real food for pregnancy you know whole chapter on toxins specifically, um, which was kind of a scary chapter to write and research. But the more I researched it, the more I felt you know this is a really important piece of the puzzle to put into the book um, for people to recognize that it's more than just food. (laughs) So I think the title of the book can kind of throw people because it's real food for pregnancy and they don't, they just think it's hundred percent all about food or they think it's a cookbook. Um, But there are so many things that play into our health that I'm kind of trying to give you an overview of all of the different areas of your lifestyle choices that can factor into your health. Um, going into pregnancy, through pregnancy, and and postpartum.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you could write a 20-part series on the different aspects, so one about stress, one about toxins, there's just so much information, and although yeah. it is scary information, it is empowering at the same time, and I think I uh, talk about the, the environmental working groups, Dirty Dozen and Clean 15, in pro- probably every single episode that I've done, so Yep. again I'll link that in the show notes for that's a great guide and resource um, to have on hand and we've mentioned some food groups that are beneficial for hormones and fertility so um, protein you mentioned cruciferous vegetables I want to talk a bit more about protein um, could you just yep. give an overview I don't even think people a lot of people know what it is where they can find it why is it important and yeah what types are the best to go for
1: so protein foods are they provide your body with the building blocks for every single cell in your body <laughs> and if you're growing a baby, um pretty much every single cell that's growing in that baby is is going to be on some level protein dependent uh, so they have all you know a full complement of amino acids, which all have different functions in our body there are. A number of amino acids some of them are essential meaning your body mu- you, you must consume them um, directly from food and others your body can make from other amino acids so when we're looking at what kinds of proteins are best we want to make sure that we're getting the full complement of all of our amino acids especially the essential amino acids so animal foods naturally have a complement of all of the essential amino acids so you don't really have to think very hard about it um, if if you're an omnivore. So meat, poultry, fish, eggs, dairy products, um, those are, those are going to have the full spectrum. Um, seafood as well, I guess that kind of lumps into the fish category. Um, for people who aren't consuming uh, animal foods, you have to be a little bit pickier about combining your proteins in order to get a full complement of the amino acids, although it can be done um, with, you know, a couple exceptions in pregnancy, because there's some shifts in which amino acids your body needs more in that, more of, that might be um, challenging to obtain on a diet that doesn't contain any animal foods whatsoever. When it comes to protein foods, I'm always looking at, like everything, again, when it's within your means, quality. So particularly with animal foods, you know, a lot of things in the food food chain bioaccumulate over the food chain so the healthier the animals are and the better their diet is um the healthier their meat is going to be as well so that that is something to consider when you're thinking about protein i would also mention just for pregnancy itself to talk about one of the areas the guidelines needs to update is their protein requirements um, i'm not sure if the uk ones are similar to the us but Back in 2015, there was the first ever study that measured um, protein requirements directly in pregnant women, which is crazy that that was just done four years ago. But uh, nonetheless, they found that protein requirements are much higher throughout pregnancy, um, the most in the latter half of pregnancy, where they were increased 73% higher than what the current average recommended intake is. So that's something that I think really speaks to the importance of just how much protein turnover is going in your bo- going on in your body in pregnancy. I mean, not only are you growing a whole new human being with skin, bone, nails, hair, connective tissue, organs, circulatory system, and all that, um, not to mention, you know, brain, uh, but your, your body is also changing in pregnancy as well. And there's a whole lot of protein turnover in your system as your body is expanding, literally. I mean, your skin is stretching, your uterus is growing, your breasts are growing. A lot of your connective tissues are shifting to allow your body to adapt and all of these things are protein dependent. So we just need to really emphasize, I think one of the things I I see a lot with clients is not eating enough protein. And a lot of this comes back to this carryover from these old guidelines that made people fear fat. And fat usually comes packaged with protein in nature. So there's this natural fear of like, I can't have more than one egg because it's too much fat and cholesterol. Or I can't have too much meat because it's bad for my heart. Or I can't have too much, I don't know, nuts. They're, they're too high in calories. And you end up with people inadvertently restricting their protein intake without thinking about it. Um, so that's something that I want to throw out because it is, it is something I have to almost overemphasize because so many people are under consuming it.
0: And how does someone know if they're getting enough? So would just having a serving at every meal and a snack if they have one would that pretty much cover all their needs or do they would you recommend tracking and um, to see how many grams that they're getting and is there a certain number to kind of shoot for?
1: Well, Sometimes your body will just tell you based on mindful eating cues if you're getting enough protein and or food in general. So if you're if you have a meal and you are ravenously hungry within two hours after eating, you probably didn't get enough protein and or also <laughs> didn't get enough like food, just get calories in general. Um and, and a lot of people Kind of err on not, not it can go both ways. You have some people who like way over consume and then you have some people who sort of are trying to restrict because they're afraid of gaining weight during pregnancy or or something else I mean there's a lot there's a lot of bodily changes which can be um foreign and uncomfortable and like almost scary because your body isn't hundred percent within your control <laughs> in pregnancy. Yeah. Um, so if you're getting signals that you're like just really hungry or having really intense cravings for sugar and carbohydrates. That often means that your previous meal didn't have a very good balance of fat, protein, and carbohydrates. Usually was probably too low in protein and or fat and a little bit excessive in carbohydrates, which will give you a pretty pretty uh, sharp spike and then crash in your blood sugar, which just physiologically tells your body that it needs food and your body is going to crave the thing that will raise your blood sugar the quickest. It is, it is not a willpower thing. It's physiologically what happens. Um, So that might be happening. If you're having headaches, if you're um, having swelling like edema, um, fluid retention, that can often be a sign that you're not getting enough protein. So I would look for some of those signs and symptoms first. Another way to go about it, yes, is to track. So um, I have the the calculation in, I believe it's chapter two of Real Food for Pregnancy, using those updated numbers. So you could calculate based on your weight, um, your pre-pregnancy weight, by the way, um, what your protein requirements for the day would be and to aim for a minimum. For a person who's about 150 pounds pre-pregnancy, and you'd have to convert that into Kilograms, (laughs) Kilograms, <laughs> yep. but um, we're looking at like 80 grams of protein minimum first half of pregnancy, 100 grams of protein minimum latter half of pregnancy. Um, you could measure, like, calculate it out specifically, or work with a nutritionist or a dietitian or somebody to to see how that looks or track for a while and see. Um, I'm just like always cautious when people start tracking food. That it's a, a temporary thing to check in with yourself and doesn't become this like obsessive control sort of a thing. Try to just like completely block out like the calorie counts and all that stuff, and just focus on the one thing that you're really doing it for. Bring it back to the reason behind the tracking, which is to make sure you're getting enough protein, um, and that can be really helpful. You might see that you know you might have thought you were getting a lot of protein at breakfast because you had one egg and then you come to find like an egg is only seven grams of protein. And if you're trying to say, you're trying to aim for a hundred grams a day, going to need so, a lot of eggs, Yeah, you know, <laughs> you need a couple eggs or, you know, a couple eggs with something else with protein in it to meet your needs. You might realize that, Oh, I could make a choice of Greek yogurt over regular yogurt. And then you're getting, you know, at least double the amount of protein. Um, maybe you'd realize like, Oh, if I'm just having oatmeal for breakfast, that's not very much protein. And I feel like crazy hangry, um, that like hungry, angry combo within like an hour and a half of eating. Hmm. There's no protein in this meal. I wonder if that's related. You know, you might have some aha moments in the process of tracking, so it can be helpful as long as you're just really zeroed in on the purpose behind tracking.
0: (laughs) So just download the app, give it three days, then just delete it. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: one yep. way to do it. Um, I'll also say I really like the app Chronometer yep. versus the, the typical MyFitnessPal my pal that I like use. <laughs> because too. Chronometer, like, it tracks all of your micronutrients. It automatically calculates net carbs. So people aren't being like, oh my God, I had so many carbs because they had an avocado, which is like, <laughs> appears high in carbs, but it's mostly fiber carbs, yeah. right? So um, that can be a really helpful app. You can set your targets really easily. And I just the way that they present the data um, takes the obsession hmm. part out of it, where I feel like my fitness pal is a little more geared towards people trying to lose weight, trying to um, manage their food via keeping calorie intake or fat intake below a certain threshold you can play around with the settings it's, it's not like a bad it's not a bad app i just find that people are less triggered and get more useful data from chronometer than MyFitnessPal. so I want to throw that out there
0: yeah that's a good recommendation and again i'll link that in the show notes for anyone who's wondering um, where they can find that one and are there any other fertility or prenatal pregnancy superfoods that you love to recommend
1: my top recommendation actually surprises people and that's eggs. So I guess it kind of makes sense when you're thinking about improving egg quality, you might want to eat some eggs, but um, you know, just to, just to elaborate on our protein conversation, you get a nice complete protein in eggs and you also get a lot of micronutrients. um, Some of which are some of the key ones for uh, egg health and, and, pregnancy, health as a whole, early fetal development, brain development, and all that. So um, some of the major things in eggs that are really beneficial for people are choline, which is a B vitamin-like compound that works right alongside folate, which most people know from its synthetic version, folic acid. Um, Very important for early um, cell division and brain development and prevention of neural tube defects. So folate and choline are like, They call them long-lost cousins. They work in tandem. And um, choline is something most people don't consume enough of. And eggs are by far the number one source in the diet. And most people, barring like an egg allergy or egg sensitivity, um, most people find that eggs are like a pretty easy food to fit into their diet too. It doesn't take much work to add some eggs. Um, Whereas some of my other top fertility foods might be a little bit Uh, foreign to people, like incorporating organ meats like liver, for example, incredibly nutrient dense. You know, liver has like 200 times more B12 ounce per ounce than like a steak. Um, A lot more iron, a lot of vitamin A, which is helpful for fertility as well. There's a lot of micronutrients in liver, choline as well. But that is something that a lot of us did not grow up eating and we don't have a taste for it. We're not used to handling it, cooking it, consuming it, whereas eggs are like an easy sell. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so yeah, people can get on board them. with that. I think my clients are sick of me recommending organ meats, but I'm just like, please try them. to see if you enjoy them because they are like multi- nature's multivitamins, aren't they?
1: They, they really are. Yeah. And in fact, I like just posted on my Instagram the other day about, um, we prepared a beef heart and People think of organ meats like well first of all if if they're if they're going to try some kind of an organ meat they're probably going to start with liver and mm-hmm. liver has one of the strongest flavors of all of the organ meats which for some people is off-putting i think when it's mixed into recipes it, it kind of just adds like a background level of flavor versus like you're just eating this irony liver you know <laughs> all by itself but people assume that all other organ meats are going to have a really strong flavor like liver as well and heart is like i mean there like is a little beige. bit of an irony aftertaste of course because yeah. it's like you know, the, your blood pumping organ yeah um and it's it's very rich in iron but it has a, a flavor and texture that's very reminiscent of like tri-tip mm. like, we cut it thin, yep. marinate it, and put it on skewers, um, and it was sort of akin to how they do it in Peru, actually. Um, although sometimes we use different marinades, Asian Asian style marinades, and it's absolutely delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, the texture is great, the flavor is great, and that's not just don't don't think that like I have broken taste buds or something because I eat liver. Like I actually prefer my food to taste good (laughs) Um, and I can tell you when we've had people over who aren't into any of this real food stuff and we have beef heart um, they're really surprised that it's so tasty so you know sometimes we just have to get out of our comfort zone a little bit um, and sort of like just just give it a shot. I have like a funny blog post on my site from the first time we tried beef heart and we were like so nervous to eat it because we were (laughs) like recording
0: yourselves (laughs) but um just in case you didn't survive. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah and yeah I I sometimes do mine in the instant pot so Mm -hmm. because it, it can be quite tough if you cook it wrong so pressure cooking it or slow cooking it is a good way to do it as well things like kidneys they are pretty iron and um rich in that way like livers Kidney- are and
1: kidneys have like i think a stronger flavor yeah than
0: liver yeah personally mm-hmm. but got, I, like, have the made a bit I have
1: enjoyed them i did it in um you know i think i you'd like marinate it in like yogurt or kefir to try to like it pulls out some mm. of the off flavors i guess um, and then you rinse that off, cut it up really small. And then I, I had it as part of like an Indian curry that I did in the instant pot. And that was, that was really enjoyable. So they can be good. Plus yeah. organs from smaller animals like chicken, um, duck, rabbit, those are going to be a much more delicate texture and mild mm-hmm. flavor. So yeah. I recommend people start there before going to like, mm-hmm. Beef liver. Yeah, that's that's much more (laughs) like beef liver. Just like sliced and fried up is not something I enjoy. The texture is like not my friend. That is something that I pretty much solely make into pate. I eat some of it fresh, and then I freeze the rest of it in like three to four ounce containers. And then anytime I'm making meatloaf, chili, meatballs, shepherd's pie, basically anything that starts with ground meat. I add in some of that and then it's kind of just spread out over the, the whole thing. If people don't know there's liver in it, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even know. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't tell them, they wouldn't know. Yeah, um, it, it really drowns out the flavor, especially when you have a lot of spices in it. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it takes a little sweet persuasion, but there's, when you start looking at the nutrient analysis on organ meats, you can start to understand why so many cultures really emphasized the consumption of organ meats or why all of our carnivorous animals, they pretty much go after the organ meats first and sometimes just leave the muscle meats for the scavengers. (laughs) And there's good reason that's where you're getting the maximum amount of micronutrients. So it is something where a little bit goes a long way. And I just really encourage people to, to, be
0: brave and try it. <laughs> and the, some cultures like prioritise the pregnant women and the sick people to have the organ meats first. So that's just a big indicator that there's some real power in these foods. Absolutely. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on dairy? So I know this is like a controversial area, um, but yeah. are you pro-dairy? And if yes, what are your reasons for that?
1: I am... I would say I'm neutral about dairy, but if it is something that agrees with your body, I'm positive about yeah. dairy. <laughs> I mm-hmm. hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Um, I think dairy is a really nutrient-dense food. Granted, the quality of dairy products and the quality of micronutrients that are in dairy products are going to depend heavily on the diet of the animal. So grass-fed, pasture-raised cows are going to make much more nutrient-dense milk than cows that are just eating grains. That's not what cows are designed to eat. So you will see a different micronutrient array um, when you look at differential, you know, dairy products from from animals that are raised in different ways. Um, Some of the nutrients I think that are especially helpful for dairy if they agree with your body is calcium content, which of course you need calcium to, well, keep up your skeletal health in pregnancy, but also to help build a new skeleton. You're also getting a lot of fat-soluble vitamins as well, so A, D, E, and K. Um, Specifically, the vitamin K2 is something you get in pretty decent amounts, especially in um, aged or fermented cheeses, which is very helpful for um, calcium deposition into your bones instead of calcium accumulating in soft tissues where it's not meant to accumulate. And when you look at where you get vitamin K2 in the diet, it is primarily animal foods. Um, you'll also get a little bit, or quite well, actually, you'll get quite a lot if you eat a very specific type of soy product called natto, which is popular in certain parts of Asia. But um, if you're averse to organ meats, I can tell you <laughs> you're not going to be able to stomach natto because even I can't stomach natto. Um, so unless you're you are from an area or grew up consuming natto, I'm going to say that's probably a not going to be a significant contributor mm-hmm. to your diet. Yeah. So dairy products, aged cheeses, um, you'll get a little bit in like fermented yogurts, but more so in the super-aged cheeses. That's really going to be one of your most significant sources and when they've looked at um, maternal osteoporosis, so like weakening and softening of the bones that happens during pregnancy, they've actually been able to reverse it with supplementation of vitamin K2. So I, I think that's one that is worth noting. Um, of course, you also get a complete protein from dairy, you get um, saturated fat, which is actually like healthy and good for you. They've shown positive effects in. Studies on fertility from people who consume high-fat dairy products, they have increased odds of conception and um, chances of carrying to term and having a live birth versus those who consume low-fat or non-fat dairy actually have reduced fertility and higher rates of fetal loss. Um, And for people who don't eat seaweed or seafood, dairy products are going to be one of the major sources of iodine in the diet as well, which is also helpful for fertility and overall pregnancy health. Um, And then just from the standpoint, as somebody who's, you know, currently pregnant and has gone through now two first trimesters, which are just sucky, nausea, annoying, (laughs) miserable phases of pregnancy, um, dairy products are often something people feel drawn to consume more of. Um, even if they're not, I'm not a huge dairy consumer outside of pregnancy. I can't say I'm like a huge dairy consumer in pregnancy either. But first trimester, I'm definitely eating more dairy than any other time in my life, including the latter stages of pregnancy as well. And it seems like there might be a nutritional reason for it um, for all of the reasons that I already went through, although I don't think this is going to be a-, a provable case. So uh, if it agrees with you, I think it's great to include some dairy products, prioritize quality, don't take the fat out because there's important nutrients in it. And if it doesn't agree with your body, I talk about alternative sources for the nutrients um, that we just discussed. So, you know, it's totally possible to still have a healthy pregnancy without it. But if it works for you, it works for you. If not, take it or leave it.
0: Yeah, that's a perfect summary. And for people who always ask, what's my opinion on dairy? I'd just say, come and listen to this. What Lily said, I agree with. Okay. <laughs> what she said. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of all of this real food, um, all of these amazing nutrient-dense foods as well, is it necessary for someone to take a prenatal, or do you think that diet alone is enough?
1: So I get asked this question a lot, and I would say... It depends. If you are a person who is able to fit in organ meats on, like, hopefully a weekly basis, eggs on an almost daily basis, animal protein on a daily basis, I'll come out and say it on a daily basis, really, if you're looking at micronutrients, Um, seafood, seafood is big, big, big. If you can fit in seafood a couple times a week, If you're eating green leafy vegetables, if you're getting a significant amount of sun exposure without sunscreen and you're living in a part of the world where you can actually make vitamin D from the sun during that time of the year, um, if all of those things line up, then I do think it's possible to meet your nutrient needs from food alone. How frequently does that actually line up for people? Probably like 1% of the time or maybe even less. Um, And even as the person who has um, written the book on the topic, I know that even I'm not meeting all of my micronutrient needs at all times. Or you might have some genetic variations. They call them SNPs um, in certain genes that can affect your requirements for certain nutrients. So the one that's most publicized right now is MTHFR can influence your requirements for folate also can influence your requirements for choline so if if you have if you're even aware of some of these genetic (laughs) variations you might know like oh hey i'm actually going to need a little extra of those nutrients specifically um i know i'm a person who tends to run low in vitamin d unless i'm like living in los angeles that's like the only time where When I specifically made an effort to be in the sun without sunscreen for a specific amount of time every week, weather permitting, my vitamin D levels were great. But you move up to a northern latitude and my vitamin D levels tank and I need a supplement with that. Mm -hmm. So I think a, a lot of times with prenatals, it's an insurance policy that you're meeting all of your requirements. If you're... You know, in your first trimester, preparing for pregnancy, and or you're facing nausea and food aversions, um, I think it's a pretty good idea to have a, a comprehensive prenatal vitamin on board. If you're a person who does not con- consume seafood products whatsoever, you're you're going to need a supplemental source of DHA and omega three fat for baby's brain development. If you're somebody who does not consume eggs you're going to need a supplemental source of choline (laughs) you know there's all of these little things where it's like okay if all of the if all of it doesn't line up just right uh, you're you're gonna need some supplements so Mm -hmm. as always the answer is not crystal clear and is a little more of it depends but probably
0: yeah so it can be done but Highly unlikely that <laughs> someone could go through it the whole pregnancy and not need some extra support. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so like, speak-
1: you know, as somebody who's pregnant right now, if there's a day when I have liver or heart, for example, I might not feel so bad about skipping my prenatal. Yeah. On a day when I'm having salmon, mm-hmm. I won't feel bad about skipping my fish oil or DHA supplement. On a day when I get a whole bunch of sun exposure, I might not feel bad about skipping my vitamin D supplement for that day or even a couple of days because you can make, you know, 20, 30,000 IUs from the sun from a decent full body sun exposure without sunscreen. So like there's things that you can kind of like pick and choose, but it's still helpful, I think, to have it on hand. And if all of this sounds like way above your head to be working with a practitioner to help you figure out what supplements are right for you and maybe in what dosages, because we don't all need exactly the same thing, (laughs) exactly the same amounts.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I think just listening to your body and on a daily basis as well, even if you're not trying to get pregnant or you're not pregnant at the moment, not being so religious with your supplements. And again, if you are extra stressed then maybe you do need that magnesium and support one day. Whereas if you're eating a really good diet and you're managing your stress another day then you may not need it so it's just listening to your body and not kind of relying on something as well yeah that's really exactly. important and speaking of supplements i know there's a lot of information out there about the benefits and of folic acid um yep. could you just give an overview of why not, that may not be the best case for everyone and maybe some alternatives
1: yeah so Uh, Folic acid is the synthetic, meaning man-made version of folate. Folate is a B vitamin that occurs in food in many different forms, actually. They refer to to them as food folates. It's not just one form, but the one that they um, manufacture and put in most prenatal vitamins and the form that they test most heavily in supplementation trials is folic acid. And this is kind of interesting because folic acid is not biologically active in your body. It requires several steps for it to be converted into a form that your body can use. And some people, uh, and some people meaning like quite a lot, like 40 to 60% of the population have a variation in their MTHFR gene, um, which influences the function of this enzyme and how well you can utilize folic acid or not. So if you have that variation, you're gonna have a you're you're just not gonna be able to convert folic acid efficiently, and that can become a problem because then it's not doing the function it's meant to do in your body, and then you have a buildup of unmetabolized folic acid in your system, which we don't fully know what the implications of that are, although there have been some studies that suggest that could be related to a higher risk of certain cancers and other things. So when it comes to folate, even if you don't know anything about your genetics, it's best to use a form that is metabolically active so um, that most people will turn to methylfolate and that's wonderful. There's also another one called folinic acid. Notice there's an IN in there. It's not folic. It's folinic acid. Um, Those are both biologically active forms of folate that your body can use regardless of what your genetics are. It's not going to hurt if you don't have an THFR variation. It's definitely going to help if you do. Um, And that's the kind to look for in your prenatal supplements. Um, And I would say also that there's a lot of people, they hear about folic acid. And so they start taking a folic acid supplement and then add on a prenatal vitamin on top of it. And some people are just getting obscene quantities of this nutrient and it's like not in the right form. (laughs) So (laughs) I've never seen a prenatal vitamin that is deficient in folate. They all contain folate. Mm -hmm. It's whether or not it contains the better form or forms of folate versus if it has any or not. Um, I personally would not be supplementing with additional folate beyond what's in your prenatal unless you're working with a practitioner who knows your genetics. Because there are situations where you want a higher intake of folate. Um, so there could be a situation where that's beneficial, but I wouldn't just blindly do it because there's so much more involved in our folate cycle. It's like all these methylation nutrients. There are things that are involved in some of the very earliest stages of um, fetal development. And really important to turning on and turning off the right genes at the right times. um, We're looking at not only folate, but choline, B12, vitamin B6, glycine. There's other nutrients that are working in this cycle, and it doesn't make sense to just flood your system with a mass quantity of folate and ignore the rest of it. So when it comes to food, your folate you're going to get mostly from liver, leafy greens, legumes. Um, avocado. You're gonna find it in smaller amounts in other foods, but those four are gonna be pretty concentrated sources in your diet. If you're eating those foods, you'll you'll be much closer to meeting your folate needs. And then whatever's in your prenatal just like boosts you up that much more and makes sure you like you're hitting your target.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could definitely be too much of a good thing with any nutrient we hear that something's good and then we like mega dose on it and we're eating all the foods but it can be dangerous in excessive amounts as with everything water that can be a problem yeah you can (laughs) can
1: mess up by having too much water and Mm -hmm. not balancing it with Mm -hmm. enough electrolytes and salt so yeah
0: Yeah. and I think people are trying to do the good thing they're doing the research but then that's when it can become a bit of a problem they just hear that something's good start taking it and yeah it's not right for their body so Yeah. yeah I'm glad you made that point so I do want to finish up with just a few questions about you personally and how you stay healthy and just a bit more about you. So the first one would be, what's your go-to breakfast? So being pregnant at the moment, what is a really balanced, nutritious go-to breakfast? So I'm, I'm
1: a, a practice what I write kind of a person. So for me, that is often eggs. Usually I do two eggs and liver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I usually don't do the two of those together. But, um, yeah. I'll do a couple of eggs. I try like that. That's, that's a, a non-negotiable is I'm, I, I'm trying to get a good amount of protein um, in breakfast itself and two eggs alone might not be enough for me. It depends on whether I'm planning to have a snack or if I'm going to be away from being able to have a snack, like if we're going on a hike or something like that. Sometimes I'll bone up a little more on protein in the morning, but usually two eggs. Try to get in some vegetables if I can in there. If you scroll my Instagram feed, you'll see a bunch of different breakfasts that have two eggs and vegetables because it's pretty, pretty typical for me. Um, sometimes I'll have bacon with it or sausage, or sometimes there'll be like a leftover, you know, um, like meat and sweet potato veggie hash that I could just reheat or some roasted vegetables that I can reheat and have along with, uh, the eggs. And I always cook my eggs in butter and in a cast iron pan. So I'm getting a little extra iron in my food and there's additional fat in there, which is very satiating. Um, Depending on the day, if I'm in the mood for, for more carbs, I might have some fruit along with it. it might be berries, might be citrus. I really enjoy citrus in pregnancy. Um, it might be a piece of like good quality sourdough bread with a whole bunch of butter on top. Uh, it really depends on the day. There might be an avocado in there. Um, but I'm, I'm always trying to make sure that there's sort of a, like a, a base of protein that's going to be really satiating and filling for me. Um, And then whatever else I'm in the mood for, kind of, it's going to vary day to day. Um, And then I typically also have um, tea with with some heavy
0: cream. Sounds good. Sounds like my kind of breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What's one food, nutrient or supplement that you just cannot live without during pregnancy? So I'll make that little spin.
1: Well, I guess I'll go with supplement because my food preferences change throughout pregnancy. I mean... Even if you ask me my typical breakfast first trimester, that'd be a lot different than my yeah. typical breakfast <laughs> in the second half of pregnancy. Um, for me, it's vitamin D. And that's because in my first pregnancy, I, so vitamin D is an area of research I'm really interested in, have been interested in for a long time um, since I did my undergrad have a whole like continuing education webinar all about vitamin D and pregnancy. It's just fascinating all the ways that this nutrient can impact your pregnancy health. Um, And so I, in my first pregnancy, I measured my vitamin D levels uh, each trimester to see where I was at. And I found that supplementing with the amount that all, all these randomized controlled trials says is adequate was not enough for me. And I needed more than that. And so whether that's a genetic thing or something else. I know definitely living at a higher latitude plays a role in that because I can't rely as much on the sun. Um, That's a nutrient that I need to supplement with in order to maintain good vitamin D status, um, especially in pregnancy. So that's one that I take, you know, up and above what's in my prenatal vitamin and um, will take pretty religiously unless I'm getting a lot of sun exposure at that time.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'm the and the same i always need vitamin d supplements i think just a combination of genetics and where i'm living and yeah just no sun exposure so yeah i need to be on the vitamin d at all times third question is what's something that you're into lately so i know that you mentioned vitamin d but it could be health related or not just something maybe that you've been researching that you want to share with us
1: well, I'm always researching something. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I presented a uh, webinar to fellow professionals on the uh, nutrient content of breast milk and how that can be impacted by a mother's intake or her nutrient status. So this comes to mind because I read through several hundred studies. I think 125 of them made it into the presentation, but, um, I would just emphasize for people who are pregnant, trying to conceive, maybe you're already postpartum, your nutritional status postpartum is really important. And your requirement for nutrients is actually higher postpartum than it is during pregnancy, particularly if you're breastfeeding. And you can actually influence the level of most, not all, most micronutrients based on what you're eating. So, all of the things that we talked about today apply to postpartum and might apply even more heavily <laughs> to postpartum yeah. than during pregnancy because your baby's brain is continuing to develop. You're repleting your new nutrient stores from pregnancy, which were depleted. If you're planning to ever have another child, which probably won't be on your mind right away but after a while it might might come back to to top of mind um you know that you can be ready if you've made sure that your nutrition is is on point so yeah there's so much more i could say about it yeah, that's very
0: um, interesting
1: but it's it's a it's a topic that's really um under discussed and deserves a lot more attention so those organ meats those eggs um, that fish and seafood; those are even more important to find ways to fit into your diet postpartum.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So, fourth and final question is: Where can people find you online? So, social media and where can they get your book as well?
1: So, you can find me. I'm most active on social media at um, on Instagram, and my handle's at Lily Nichols RDN. You can find me on my website, which is also LilyNicholsRDN.com, And uh, there I give away the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free. So if you just want to get a sort of introduction into what this whole real food thing is, more on this epigenetics, like what are the, the big picture implications of your nutrient status in pregnancy on, on your health and your baby's health. Um, the first chapter goes through all of that. And uh, So that's free on my website. There's also a bunch of blog posts. I've been blogging for years. There's like 250 plus blog posts if you just want to read through the archives. Um, A lot of my interviews are linked on my press page as well. And in terms of the books, those are also both linked on the website. If you want to just click on the books tab, um, it'll link out to where you can purchase both Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. I think Amazon is the easiest for most people but there's some independent bookstores Barnes and Noble um, that'll carry it and if you're an audiobook person you can get Real Food for Pregnancy in audio format so if you're not super annoyed at my voice after hour, there's like 12 and a half hours more of it oh, yes.
0: <laughs> so they can spend a whole weekend listening to your audiobook and reading all of your blog posts <laughs> yeah so um yeah thank you so much for your time lily and thank you for your books as well and your research that you're doing just as a practitioner as well just compiling all of the the data and the research that anyone who's pregnant or is looking to get pregnant in the future should know it's absolutely in the book and i wish you all the best for the rest of your pregnancy as well thank you thanks for having me on thank you for listening to another episode of the hormones in harmony podcast if you like this episode please leave me a rating and review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances as a massive thank you gift i'll send you a free guide six steps to hormonal harmony all you need to do is screenshot your rating and review then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and i'll send you the link to download this free guide If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and Instagram page at vivanaturalhealth for tons more free content and inspiration. You can also schedule a free 30-minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next step to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally. See you back here next week for another episode.